This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Wisconsin 8th District Representative Reed Ribble. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Reed Ribble next. Sugar subsidies in 120 countries are on the rise and threatening 142,000 U.S. jobs. That's why the American Sugar Alliance is pushing for a global subsidy ceasefire. Their goal is a subsidy-free world market that fosters efficiency. And they know that unilateral disarmament of America's no-cost policy without concessions from abroad will only outsource U.S. jobs and reward foreign subsidizers. The plan is called the Zero for Zero Sugar Policy. You can learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Representative Reed Ribble says the country faces two major challenges in supporting its economy and dealing with how it budgets and spends money. The Wisconsin Republican says the coalition Congress needs a speaker who can build bridges. When you look across the spectrum of Democrats, independents, libertarians, and Republicans in the Congress, particularly in the House of Representatives here, you've got a lot of different coalitions. Uh, You've got people that are defense hawks. You've got deficit hawks. You've got those that are worried about Social Security and Medicare. And, And so they span the entire political spectrum. And the speaker's got to be able to build bridges to get to some level of consensus to move any type of policy forward. And so um, that, that's, that's that person's biggest task is to do that. It's clearly the toughest job in government. You know, I, I don't think that there is any other position in government that's more difficult than being Speaker of the House. And because you not only uh, do you have to herd cats in the House of Representatives, you have to be willing to work with the counterparts in the U.S. Senate and some of those are, are uh, adversaries and some are colleagues. And then you also have to work with the uh, President of the United States. So it's a very difficult role to play inside government. It was intended to be difficult because the idea of having government move slowly, methodically, thoughtfully is uh, what our founders envisioned. Uh, the American people view it as gridlock. The founders uh, view it as the normal pace of work. We are operating under a budget CR. What major obstacles need to be overcome to finally get a long-term spending deal? Well, the, 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 the largest obstacle, quite frankly, are Senate Democrats. And uh, I don't mean to politicize it, but the House of Representatives have already moved with seven of their appropriations bills in regular order, meaning they, they were brought to the floor in an open process where Republicans and Democrats alike were able to amend the bills. Uh, they've been sent over to the U.S. Senate, and not a single one has been allowed to be brought to the floor because Senate Democrats have blocked it. And their argument, quite frankly, is that, well, we don't like the budget that the Congress has agreed to, and so, therefore, we're going to stop everything until you listen to us because we want to spend more money. And uh, as a result of it, they've stopped everything. The big challenge here, then, is how do you move forward with a long-term spending bill when Senate Democrats want to increase spending um, and uh, both Senate and House Republicans who are in the majority are saying there's a governing law passed in 2011 that sets the caps and we're going to budget to that. Well, when you think about the budget side of the equation, you don't just have a budget. You also have a debt ceiling that goes along with this. That's correct. But my, my suspicion is that the debt ceiling will be uh, dealt with prior to Speaker John Boehner leaving office. I think we'll deal with that the last week of October. 
Um, and that that particular agreement may lay the foundation or the uh, framework for the ongoing uh, funding or spending um, appropriations bills that will come later in December. Well, we, we, there was much talk about a potential government shutdown in front of the approval of this last CR. I have a feeling that ghost may come out of the closet again. Yeah, I, th- I think it's possible, but it'll be a different dynamic because if there's a shutdown in December, it'll be because Democrats won't move on a, on a funding bill. We're able to, in, in the House and Senate, quite frankly, pass these bills as long as they don't get filibustered. And so the unfortunate videos that were released related to Planned Parenthood uh, distracted everybody to focus on Planned Parenthood and uh, the sale of fetal body tissue as opposed to what the real issue and real threat to government shutdown was, and that was the obstruction in the U.S. Senate to move forward with any spending bill at all. Some of these items have been able to come up and do derail important pieces of legislation that need to be addressed. And you mentioned Planned Parenthood. There was also a Confederate flag issue. Yes. And I wonder now, is the gun control issue, especially with the words from the president, is this something else that can be a distraction? It can be a distraction, but I don't think it will be a distraction. I don't think that that's going to be it. Um, I, I think this is the, the entire discussion going into December is going to be centered around the budget caps, how we're going to fund defense, and then what, what relational thing does that do to discretionary spending. For me personally, I think we have to look at our entitlements because this is where the bulk of the spending is happening, uh, roughly 70% in rough numbers, 70% of the federal dollars are now on autopilot funding Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, Veterans Affairs, and interest on the national debt. Unless we're willing to, to really face up to these big challenges and reform those programs for the future, um, everything else is a bit irrelevant. Well, Secretary Vilsack suggesting this last week at a hearing that sequestration will even kick in for farm program payments. Uh, sequestration was that poison pill because of a lack of decision. Uh, do you see the political will to be able to move past sequestration, to come up with a plan that uh, that does control or at least try to get a handle around spending? There's certainly political will on the Republican side um, because we're willing to deal with the difficult issues. We're willing to take on those challenges related to uh, Medicare and Social Security, which you have to do to deal with sequestration. Um, myself, uh, I've offered a piece of legislation that would remove the firewall as a first step to deal with sequestration, remove the firewall between domestic and uh, defense spending, uh, leaving the caps in place, which would then allow the Congress to retain the power of the purse and direct money to where the priorities are, are most needed. In some, some years, it'll be uh, issues of defense, and in other years, it'll be domestic spending, but it would, it would give us more flexibility to take a look at what actually needs to happen in agriculture programs and to make sure that they're funded correctly. I also know that you've been a part of a discussion about moving to a biennial budget, and there are a number of folks that are willing to have that conversation. Is there political will to do that? And if you can't get a single-year deal, then what makes a two-year deal any easier? Well, what makes it easier is the fact that you take the election year politics out of it. If you look historically, since 1974, on election years, 80% of those years we have no budget at all. The budget is one of the most difficult votes that any member of Congress takes because it, it focuses like a laser on what your priorities are and voters get to see it. And by moving that further away from the election years, uh, you'd be surprised at how much additional political courage it provides for members. But getting that two-year cycle taken care of, one of the big benefits in, in uh, our efforts to reduce federal spending 
is that every single agency has a use it or lose it mentality. And so for the, the last four or five weeks of the fiscal year, roughly 19 to 20% of all federal spending takes place then. And there's a spike of about $20 billion in the last week alone. By moving that to, to just one time over two years, there's some pretty significant savings that are there, and that's why members of Congress are so supportive. I have over 220 co-sponsors on that legislation, enough to pass the House. We're going to stay with budget, but I want to ask your overall impression of the EPA's new WOTUS rule. Uh, my overall impression is it would be a disaster for agriculture. I don't even think it's necessarily good for, for the, uh, the nation's ecology and environment. Um, at some point, you, can't, you cannot have a definition of, of waterways as broad as this is, or you'll end agriculture in this country. So I ask that knowing that a number of challenges have come to that uh, from the Congress, but ultimately it appears at this hour it may be spending legislation is about the only way uh, to hold back on the complete implementation uh, of the new rule across the country. Does that make it into the spending debate, and is that one of those distractions that can throw the process off course? I don't think anybody would vote against an annual spending bill that fully funds the government simply because we withhold money for the implementation of that rule. And I think that that's likely to happen in December. There's a lot of folks that would really like to see tax extenders dealt with before the last two weeks of the year. Do you see hope for tax extenders before the 11th of December? Sure, there'll be something done on tax extenders, depending on how uh, the new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Chairman Paul Ryan, deals with it, will determine its likely success. One of the issues that, as a former small business owner myself, is these retroactive tax tax extenders don't help the economy that much because they're not reliable. They should be made, if, if a tax policy makes good sense for the economy, we should be making those tax policies permanent rather than just extending them for another year, extending them for another year, and then even worse yet, doing them retroactively after the end of the year is done so that businesses and small, particularly small businesses can't even take advantage of them during the course of their normal business. And so they're going to get done, but I would much prefer to see the process that Chairman Ryan has taken where they're picking the, the good extenders and they're actually making that policy permanent so that we don't have to keep revoting on these things. One more, the authorization for the Export-Import Bank has expired. Some companies say they're leaving if this is not reinstated. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been a supporter of the Export-Import Bank, um, not because I think it's the best way for us to deal export financing, because I believe that the idea of uh, not authorizing it is a unilateral disarmament, where we're saying as one country, uh, we're, no, we're no longer going to provide that service, but 60 of our competitors globally will. I don't think that's the right approach. If, if those who want to get rid of the Export-Import Financing really want to do this in the correct way, they should deal with it at the trade negotiation level. And a prime example would have been right here with the TPP coming up, the deal with that export financing there where countries say, we agree that we won't use export financing within this trade agreement between these countries. That's how you deal with the export-import bank is at the trade level. 
But for us to say we're just not going to authorize it while all of our competitors do, I don't think is the wisest move economically. It's hard to ask your opinion about something that you haven't read. We don't have the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal recently announced. But just from the first blush and from what you have heard and what you've read, what are your thoughts about this deal, the pros and cons? Well, you know, I I think initially I feel pretty good about it. Um, uh, what, What... most Americans are unaware is that their members of Congress uh, have been talking with the U.S. Trade Representatives, and and throughout this entire negotiation, uh, I've had uh, had several conversations with Ambassador Froman, and throughout the entire period, we've been dealing with the USTR to weigh in for uh, Wisconsin's agriculture, um, and so we do have a, a relative handle on what's going on. I think uh, certainly Upper Midwest dairy uh, has a bit of a win. It's not a great win. Uh, from what I understand with the, with the Canadians and the Japanese, but I don't know that we necessarily got the best deal we could have gotten out of related to butter sales into Japan. And so um, there are some things there that are good, some things we're not going to like. This is a negotiation, and so you have some wins and some losses in any negotiation, some improvements and maybe some things you would have liked to have done better on. But it's very difficult for me to actually weigh in on this agreement until I get to read the text of it so I can see what we've actually agreed to. We already see presidential candidates talking about their support or their discord with this particular trade accord. Do you think the new provisions that were approved under TPA for communication between the administration and Congress, will that amp up or will that silence some of the critics? And and then especially, what about the timing of when this thing would actually be debated on the Hill? Yeah, okay. On, on the, as far as whether it'll amp up, the, the TPA will amp up the critics uh, and, and the advocates, I think, sure. I mean, uh, we're in the political silly season of presidential politics, and uh, right now uh, I, I'm just a little bit surprised by how, how lack, how, how they've, uh, many of the candidates have lacked any type of measurement or uh, cautiousness in what they've said. They act as if they've read the whole agreement, but it's, the text isn't even out yet. And, I mean, Donald Trump came out adamantly against it within the hours of when it was announced, and there was zero chance he had any idea what was in that. And so I would rather that they were more measured, and, and then we see the agreement, you'll be able to, they'll be able to make the case based on their own political ideology. In relationship to the Congress, I think sometime uh, early in January is when that vote will ultimately take place. But I could, I could be wrong. It might move sooner. Uh, the Farm Bill is in place, uh, and obviously these are not easy times for a number of your constituents uh, in dairy country. Uh, how do you evaluate the safety net for dairy farmers and any ideas of why it's been difficult to see them come in and participate in some of the programs offered? I think when you look at any type of new program, it takes a while for the industry to... Uh, First of all, it takes a while for government to get the program actually implemented and written, and then it takes another leg for, for the industry to understand what the rules actually are to, to deal with the, the new policies as it relates to dairy. Um, as, as they get more familiar with it and more comfortable with it, the dairy industry will begin to, uh, as they choose, they'll tap into this program, um, and they will either buy margin insurance or they'll choose not to buy margin insurance. Um, when I talk to uh, dairy farmers in northeast Wisconsin, um, the reports that I get back is that uh, the programs seem to be working as, as they were intended. The programs seem to be functioning as the way they were uh, told they would function. And uh, they, they do, however, look forward to understanding it better. As we look toward close, I know that you've been talking about an environmental issue called Save the Bay. 
Yes, and that basically, uh, when you look at the Great Lakes uh, as an entire system, it's the largest body of fresh water in the United States. Forty million Americans get their drinking water from there. It contributes about four percent to the nation's GDP, and uh, we cannot have hypoxic zones, uh, zones where everything inside that that body of water dies because there's no oxygen. Uh, caused by an overflooding of nutrient going into the bodies of water. So up up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is part of the part of Lake Michigan, uh, we had a large hypoxic zone the last three years. You're seeing the blue algae that's growing in Lake Erie, and this is caused by by uh, nutrients that are getting put into the water system, both by point source inside our urban areas and from industrial production. Uh, that's about fifty percent of the problem, and the other fifty percent is coming from nutrients that are being applied on farmers' fields to, uh, to increase organic matter, to, to uh, grow crops better, and some of those nutrients are getting into our waterways and getting there. So I've been working on a project here to uh, create best practices for uh, Wisconsin's farming industry to use as it relates to uh, providing buffer zones, cover crops, low-till, manure injection into soil, and things like that to reduce the amount of nutrient getting into the water and holding the nutrient on the field instead. Initially voluntary or mandatory? All voluntary. Listen, farmers want to keep the nutrient there. They believe that the nutrient's good for their crops, and so it doesn't pay to have that nutrient wash away. However, many farmers are uh, traditionalists. Listen, this is how my daddy did it, my granddad and my great-granddad did it, so if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And what we have to do is begin to uh, use our conservation agents and farmer-to-farmer discussions through our, our uh, agriculture industry, particularly in the ag media, to, uh, to talk about these better uh, environmentally uh, safer practices. And you, I think you're going to see farmers who want to keep nutrients on their field adapting these practices very quickly. Congressman Ribble, we want to thank you so much for spending time with us here on Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, Mike's yours. Well, thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to have had this conversation today. Uh, as everyone is aware, America faces some very big challenges, and the bulk of those challenges center around our nation's economy and, and how Washington, D.C. chooses to budget and spend money. I've been working diligently to try to improve that process by uh, changing our budget process to a two-year system rather than a one-year system, which I think builds in a, a certain level of certainty and confidence in, in the marketplace, certainly for uh, government purchasing and sourcing. Uh, when they have a reliable funding stream, they can, they can uh, purchase better and more efficiently to drive costs down. Uh, and then uh, we're going to have to, as a, as a community of citizens, ultimately face up to the fact that our, our social safety net and related for senior care, related to, to Medicare and Social Security, uh, we're going to have to address these issues head on, uh, and we're going to need to have every single American involved in it so that we can protect these programs for today's seniors and uh, for tomorrow's seniors like my two grandchildren as well. And so those are the things that I'm passionate about, what I've been working on. It's been good to be with AgriPulse this morning. Our thanks to Wisconsin 8th District Representative Reed Ribble, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. The American Sugar Alliance is a national coalition of sugar farmers, processors, refiners, and suppliers dedicated to preserving a strong sugar industry. Learn more at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.